The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Sean Xie, director and editor of China Development Brief English. Earlier this year, CDB, CDB issued two publications on NGOs in China, the Directory of Chinese NGOs, Civil Society in the Making, and Mapping China's Public Interest NGOs. Sean, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about the development of civil society in China and your work at CDB English. Could you describe for us briefly the history of China Development Brief and CDB English? Um, yes, I'd, I'd love to. Um, so CDB English was, well, CDB, let me say, first of all, was started in 1996 by Nick Young, who was a British journalist. And he uh, be, was, he wrote it as a, he, CDB was a, in newsletter form, it was written for international development organizations to learn about development uh, opportunities in China. So he wrote uh, this for a number of a couple of years, and then um, his uh, Chinese staff thought, well, it might be interesting if this was also in Chinese. So they also so they began to write uh, a newsletter in Chinese, and that was in the late 1990s. Uh, and then in, in 2003, the Chinese staff went off and started <clears throat> their own organization, which they registered as China Development Brief. So then you had two China Development Briefs. You had the English one, and you had the Chinese one. Um, and so, but they both worked together. They both worked in the same offices, and they cooperated together on the same kinds of, uh, on the same issues. The Chinese side focused more on <clears throat> um, civil society, uh, I think Nick's, uh, the English side was focused more on the sort of development sector and on civil society. And um, in 2007, Nick Young was not uh, allowed back into China, so the English side essentially closed down, and the Chinese side kept on reporting. Uh, <clears throat> and it was in this context that I approached China Development Brief to talk to them about translating their material into English, and that was in 2000, toward the end of 2010. And so we started uh, a translation project called CDB English in 2011, uh, and this was, in a way, an attempt to resurrect uh, the English version, but also to do something different, which is to translate the Chinese reporting. Uh, in the past, CDB, the, the English side had done their own reporting, and so what we were just doing was translating the, uh, the Chinese reporting. And so we've done this for the last two years. And uh, we've been working together mostly with the Chinese side doing the reporting and then our side doing the translation and some of the writing. Does the Chinese side find it a challenge to do reporting on developments in civil society, NGOs, and so on in China? Um, yeah, I think they, you know, they are definitely careful about the kind of reporting they do and uh, what areas they they report on. There are, of course, certain areas that are more, more sensitive than others. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, 
probably the most sensitive areas are um, things that cover topics that cover ethnic minorities, religion. I don't think CDB tends not to report on some of those areas. They have done some reporting on ethnic minorities, um, but they are pretty careful to do it in areas that are, are more acceptable. Uh, over the years, I think they've cultivated this ability to know what, you know, what is safe reporting and what's, what's not. Um, but having said that, I would say that CDB also tries to do reporting on topics that maybe other organizations might see as sensitive. And, uh, but CDB thinks it's important because they, it should get that kind of exposure. So I think when they do, when I say they do safe reporting, they're, they're, um, they also want to bring to light some of the, um, the work that's being done by NGOs in more marginalized and uh, vulnerable sectors. Some say that the response to the huge and devastating Sichuan earthquake in 2008 marked a major change in the role and acceptance of NGOs in China. A lot of individuals and organizations rushed in to assist with rescue and recovery and were allowed to do so, perhaps even encouraged to do so, by local and national authorities. What is the significance of that? Yeah, no, I see the um, 2008 earthquake as a, a watershed event for NGOs, civil society, um, volunteer groups in, in, in China. Uh, I think primarily because, yeah, it gave those organizations a public stage to, uh, to carry out their work in a way that was visible uh, to the rest of Chinese society. They were covered by the media. And so I think it really brought them onto that public stage. Before, Chinese NGOs had been sort of marginalized. Uh, people didn't know what NGOs were. Local authorities had not seen NGOs before, had never worked with them. So in, after the earthquake, you had a number of NGOs that went and worked uh, in the earthquake-stricken areas with local authorities and helped educate local authorities about the work they did. So I think that was really helpful in improving the, the image uh, and the visibility of NGOs and, and you know, volunteer groups in, in China. Could you talk a bit about the legal framework of NGOs in China? Yeah, the legal framework is... Is uh, hasn't really changed that much, but uh, and, and it's uh, not something that is immediately understandable to to foreigners because uh, the terms are all different than the kind of the terms we use. Let's say in the West, we talk about nonprofits. Um, in China, they talk about social organizations, and there are three. Uh, three categories of social organizations. So one is um, social organizations, which I know is confusing because it has same, same, uh, very much the same name, but social organizations are a category of like membership associations. And then you have the, um, what's called the civil non-enterprise units, uh, which are like service provision units. Um, and then the third category are foundations. So those are the three categories of the equivalent to our nonprofits, and, and they're called social organizations. And so, um, and there are three uh, regulations, three main regulations that regulate those three categories. Um, and basically, what it uh, requires is to, to register as a, a nonprofit or NGO, you have to find a government supervising unit, uh, some kind of government agency that's willing to sponsor you. 
Uh, and if you find that, if you're lucky to find that kind of sponsoring unit, then you can go and register with uh, the Civil Affairs Bureau and become a legally registered NGO. Uh, the problem for a lot of NGOs in China is that they can't find a government sponsor. A gov uh, it's usually government sponsors are not willing to sponsor organizations that they don't know, they don't uh, have any knowledge of, and so it's been very difficult for what we call grassroots organizations to find government sponsors and to register. So as a result, a lot of, uh, a lot of NGOs, a number of NGOs uh, register as businesses or don't register And then all. have to pay tax. Yeah, so they register as a business and they have to pay a, I think it's a 5.6% uh, percent business tax, mm -hmm. right? Continuing with the legal theme, what is the role of lawyers, especially public interest lawyers, in advocacy in China? Um, you know, public interest lawyers can play uh, an, important, <coughs> an important role in um, filing lawsuits, and lawsuits are one way to, uh, to carry out advocacy in China by trying to use lawsuits to change uh, certain regulations or, or policies. So public interest lawyers, because they have the capacity, they have the knowledge about how to carry, how to file lawsuits, um, play, they are important uh, in that regard. And there have been cases of public interest lawyers working together with NGOs to, to file those lawsuits uh, on behalf of, you know, a, a number of different um, uh, groups. You mention in the report some impact litigation. Can you describe that a bit? Yeah. Um, so impact litigation refers to like high-profile lawsuits that catch the attention of the media um, and the public. And so, yeah, there have been a number of cases that are contained in the um, special report on public advocacy in, in China, which uh, is one of the publications that I'm talking about today. And uh, so. You know, one. I mean, there's. You know, one. One such case was uh, the Swinjigang case, which led to the repeal of the um, the institution of detention, uh, because Swinjigang was beaten by uh, policemen in the detention center, and he died as a result of his injuries. So that um, that was a case that really got a lot of attention because. Can it you backtrack a minute and yes. explain why he was detained? Well, he was detained because he didn't have a, um, an identification card. He wasn't carrying it on him. Uh, and so the police brought him to these, this detention center. Uh, his ID, I think, was back in his hometown. Um, and so, you know, that was, that was the reason why he was detained. Uh, but the police uh, used, obviously, uh, unnecessary force in, in detaining him and, and questioning him. Um, and so, as a result of that case, um, the um, the Chinese government um, basically uh, it, it removed that um, the whole institution. What is the impact of social media, especially microblogging, on civil society development and advocacy in China? Yeah, I think uh, social media has had we've seen it have a huge impact uh, on. On the NGO public advocacy sector, uh, it is a tool that uh, is very low cost. It uh, allows NGOs, individual activists, to to spread the word very quickly about um, 
various controversies and events. Uh, so, like, you know, the, there was a scandal about the Chinese Red Cross called the Guomimei scandal, and that was spread through social media. Uh, and it had a big impact on, on the philanthropy world and led to a lot of questioning about the, the Chinese Red Cross and the lack of transparency in the Chinese Red Cross and led to a lot of uh, people, led many people to, to, to call for reforms in the China, way Chinese Red Cross does uh, their business and to provide more transparency. So, you know, we, I, think, I would say in the last couple of years, social media has really provided um, a way for individual citizens and NGOs to, uh, to make these kinds of controversies, to bring these controversies out into the public light. And, um, and that's also had an impact on mainstream media uh, because it's forced mainstream media to keep up with those events and to cover them as well. Okay, we're running out of time, so I'll ask one more question. You mentioned philanthropy, and an issue facing NGOs the world over is funding. There are now some extremely wealthy people in China today. Are they likely to become the Carnegies and Rockefellers and Luces or the Bill Gates and Warren Buffetts of China? Um, well, <laughs> and only time will tell, but I think that... Uh, I mean, first of all, compared to Gates and the Carnegies, uh, the the philanthropists in China right now are uh, they, they pale in comparison. I mean, I think the Gates Foundation has their total assets equal all the assets of all the foundations in China today. So, I, I think we're talking about right now, you know, small, small, small scale, but um, but certainly they're going very fast. So, you see a lot of wealthy people now starting their own foundations. I think now there's close to 3,000 foundations in China, which is a huge, you know, a big jump from, uh, say, 2008, uh, six, you know, five, six, seven years ago. So there, there has been a big jump in that. Um, it's not clear, though, whether the these philanthropists, well, it's, let me say that the, the philanthropists aren't clear about what they want to do with their money. So I think it was, I can't remember if it was, uh, Carnegie or, or someone else who said, you know, it's easy to, to make uh, a lot of money, but it's hard to spend it. Um, and I think these philanthropists are finding that out. They're just finding it's difficult to develop some kind of strategic direction about what they want to do with that money and how they want to spend it. Um, but it does have the potential to, yeah, to really make uh, some, some major changes in, in, uh, or carry out social changes that, uh, that they would like to see. Uh, it certainly has the potential to serve as another a source of funding for, for China's NGOs. Um, so I think, yeah, if that, if that transpires, then I think we'll see that those foundations have hopefully as much impact as the Carnegies and the Fords and uh, the Rockefellers. Okay. Sean, thank you very much for talking with me today. Okay. Well, you're welcome.